Our Three Cents is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, please go to greenlitpodcasts.com. Hello and welcome to a very special bonus episode of Our Three Cents. I'm joined by my two friends, my childhood friend, Chris Dow. A big, deep breath. And my adulthood friend, Minty Booth. Croak. And we have been counting down our top 100 favourite video games of all time. So, this episode is dedicated to the games that were almost the maybe games and the just not quite games. Uh, when we were putting together our lists almost three years ago, we uh, ummed and erred and over every single entry, its specific position and its right and royal place in our top hundreds. Uh, but there were some that inevitably didn't make the cut. And we're not talking about the games that we've played since starting the podcast that we know would be on the list now. We're taking a mental trip back to our former selves to the point where we decided that Clockwork Night 2, Bomber Raid and Elevits were better than the 10 games that we have decided to talk <laughs> about today. Our Honourable mentions. In this episode, we are going to tackle the first five of those honourable mentions. So gird up and listen to these 15 definitively good games. <laughs> these aren't in a particular ranked order. We are just simply going to talk about why they almost made it onto the list and, uh, and, and, well, and why they weren't. And we're going to start with Minty. So a little bit of uh, backstory and justification <laughs> for this pick. I was... Um, <laughs> I was 11 years old and was slowly developing pubically amidst the <laughs> onslaughts, sorry, golden age of early 3D platformers. I know that Donkey Kong 64 is met with a lot of uh, rightful scorn these days oh. for the uh, the convoluted gameplay, the the insurmountable five-character-specific collectathon bullshit, and a <laughs> middling at best multiplayer mode from the company who made Goldeneye, and I assume thought, well, we've got that, Let's, that'll do, let's just stick it in. <laughs> but I do think of this game very fondly, like I would think of my child if they ended up being ugly or a Tory. <laughs> <laughs> Donkey Kong 64 takes the 3D platformer and decides to absolutely fuck it up by stretching the term varied gameplay to its absolute limit. The classic minecart levels are here. There is some very light first-person shooting action. There's five apes to choose from. Uh, Lanky can run fast. Chunky can hit things extremely powerfully. Um, Tiny, I think, is small. Donkey Kong is the one that you start playing as, and Diddy Kong is there. <laughs> they have all their different abilities and use them to work together to uh, to progress in the levels, etc., etc., and all the rest of it. I thought the boss fights were good. The levels were varied. It seemed like it was the logical and probably devastating conclusion of the early 3D platformer. Like, every game had its own collectibles, abilities, bosses, settings at that point, and... Rare decided to offer up Donkey Kong 64, drunk on the success of things like Banjo-Kazooie and tightly gripping the heart of every Nintendo gamer at the time and say, here's every 3D game ever, smashed into one, expand on. Including the DK rap. Chris, <laughs> over to you. What's your first honourable mention? My first is a shoot-em-up called Darius Burst Chronicle Saviors. And oh. I wanted to kick off with this game first because it has a direct genre connection to my 100th favourite game, which is the inimitable Bomber Raid <laughs> that you mentioned earlier. And and thinking about Darius Burst felt particularly silly as I'm essentially trying to argue that this modern shoot-em-up that is so generous with content and so reverent towards the series' own history as well was 
everything else that had happened in the genre up until that point is somehow not as good as Bomber Raid. <laughs> but it's all about personal history, I think. And Bomber Raid defined a real chunk of my childhood because it was a game I owned for my first console. It was a game I'd play with my good old dad. You know, there's, there's loads of games I played back then that I can't reasonably argue are that good. But the number of hours I played them for is what elevates them to be, you know, an experience that's more memorable. So games like the Master System port of Golden Axe, uh, Kung Fu Kid, Psycho Fox, they're all bang average or worse. <laughs> but the experiences I had with them and, and kind of other games around that time is, I think, reflected in some part by Bomber Raid being included in the list. Like in my head, to have that kind of Master System game in that position summed up a lot of what I was playing when I was in, you know, a single digit age. And it's a standard for the time when, you know, getting a new Master System cartridge was everything. And I was young enough as well that games were still a family thing as opposed to a hobby that became mine and that everyone else was just aware of and tolerated <laughs> in the house. But Darius Burst is, is a great shooter. Like I, I rebought it recently for the Switch when I bought my arcade stick and I love it very much. But I didn't play it until I first, you know, I picked it up on the PlayStation 4 originally and I was already in my late 20s. At that point, dad had lost all interest in games and it hardly mattered if it was good or not because if it was rubbish, I could play one of the thousands of other games that were on my shelves <laughs> at the time. So it just, there wasn't the same kind of push to actually get good at something, find enjoyment in it. But I still think it is worth giving a nod to though, because it is a really welcoming content stuffed horizontal shooter that can appeal equally, I think, to, to kind of total casuals with that genre, as well as people that are like hardcore fans. So it's, it's a very good game, but yeah, it doesn't have the nostalgic sort of connection that, that Bomber Aid did. Well, my first honourable mention is the 3DS remake of Generation 3 Pokemon, which is Pokemon Sapphire. And I think, in hindsight, I do prefer this game to Pokemon X, which was on my list. I really, really enjoyed playing uh, the first uh, Sapphire game, even though being initially sort of underwhelmed by the sort of graphical leap that had been taken with the uh, the Game Boy Advance. It didn't really look like a, a huge cut above uh, what, you know, the Game Boy Color was doing, even, even though it was. But I really, really liked the environmental uh, overtones of the game and the weather system that made the world feel more alive. Plus, it introduced one of my absolute favorite Pokemon in Kyogre, which was the poster boy for Sapphire. And he was just he was just great like you could do a brilliant move set with him where i think i had water spout which is just a great water move that is more effective when you have more health then i had surf for the times when my health did go down if ever then ice beam to use against dragons and thunder and because kyogre's ability basically made it that it was always raining it meant that thunder had 100% accuracy so it was just a it was just a real real beast and i remember linking up my original sapphire game with I guess it would have been Pokemon Coliseum on the GameCube. And uh, there was like a hundred battle tower for doing dual battles. So you send out two Pokemon against two Pokemon. And I basically used two Kyogres as a dual team just to beat the entire hundred battle tower. And I don't think I didn't really have any problems at all. Apart from when I, I did come a bit a cropper when you have to fight two Ludicolo and Ludicolo have an ability called Rain Dish, which means if it's raining, they recover health. So that battle just became a real victory through attrition. Now, I know the game was initially criticised for having, and I quote, too much water, uh, but I never minded that. 
like I said, I liked the overall environmental theme and that really played into that. But a few quality of life things and a bit of a graphical overhaul were introduced in the 3DS remake that made it just just an outstanding adventure. I think if I were doing my list over again, given the chance to reflect on Sapphire, I think I probably would sub out Ultra Sun and X in exchange of Sapphire because I think in, in hindsight it's... Yeah, I think I think it's probably actually my favourite Pokemon game from those uh, from those few generations. So so I'm not sure why I didn't put it in my list. To be honest, bloody Wally. Exactly, exactly. I have an opinion about um, Pokemon Ruby and Sapphire. I think they did have too much water, but they could have fixed it in a very very simple way. All they needed to do, like you know how on the land you have um, you have tall grass. Mm. Well, they should have had um, they should have had tall water where pokemon <laughs> lived or deep water yes deep 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 water deep <laughs> extra wet water but yes uh, the point still stands they should have had deep water where you would meet wild pokemon and just shallow water where you could walk if you didn't have to meet her and make every tile a potential encounter that's ludicrous no wonder people hated it yeah, no, actually, that is a good that is a good shout, Minty. Conker's Bad Fur Day is a lot oh. like the old uh, the old game show Bullseye, right? In the words of Peter K, it was shit, but it were good. <laughs> uh, I have a theory that it's responsible for Rick and Morty. Okay, yeah, yeah, there's definitely uh, definitely oh, a link there. And I uh, I really loved it. Uh, following the development of the game very loosely, I remember a screenshot from like. Uh, 1996, so a, a little picture of a, a squirrel. Um, I think it was Conker and maybe his his girlfriend. What was her name? Barry. Uh, but yeah, they were they, they were they were looking at a dinosaur in a ploughed field. Not really a ringing endorsement for what would weirdly become a cultural flash with its puerile humour, pop culture references, and the use of your piss as a puzzle solving mechanic. <laughs> I mean. It was derivative. It was a little bit of a slog at times. And only, I think it only really got the attention it did because it was an exclusive release for the uh, the kiddie Nintendo console. It had some swear words and still lots of fun. It was weirdly broken up into two parts. Um, I, the, the first half was set in the daytime, and you had um, and it was it was basic three D platforming, um, but with things like. Uh, a mountain made of poo or that sunflower with the massive tits that you had to um, guide a king bee um, towards so that he could motorboat her. Oh, yeah, okay. you're right. <laughs> it was not terribly pleasant looking back at it. And <laughs> the only reason that you needed to do that was so that you could, so that you could bounce on her tits to get some money that was in an alcove above her. And that's what you were collecting in this game. It wasn't uh, jiggies or stars or anything. It was just, um, it was just foul-mouthed little um, little bits of uh, cash. They're like, hey, pick me up, shithead. <laughs> Everybody had an American accent. I don't think anybody on the on, on, on in the cast was American at all. No, definitely but not. after that, uh, you get to the nighttime and then it sort of flips into like a third-person shootery bit like with, uh, with, with Dracula. Um, like a, a very loosely... A very loosely war-based um, section, and then the hallway scene from The Matrix, where you were flipping between pillars, uh, which culminated in a fight with you fighting the Xenomorph oh, yeah. as the final boss instead of the yeah. uh, the Panther King, who was being built up in the cutscenes as the main antagonist, who only really 
threatened you because he he wanted to sort of steady a wobbly leg on his table and the scientist said that it was it was squirrel size the exact height of the table that was their justification Damn. wasn't it so yeah that's where the threat comes from um weird game <laughs> not 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 particularly good but still very very fun <laughs> uh, conquer falls just outside of my honorable mentions <laughs> so this is this is like in like in position 111 on my list or something like that because yeah i i had a lot of fun with it as a kid i beat it all in the n64 i beat the whole thing again on the xbox when it had its remaster there and i enjoyed it both times but i i think when i was thinking about the list it was like it is so puerile Mm. That I, like, like you mentioned, I would have felt quite uncomfortable trying to sell some of those jokes as <laughs> yeah. like a reason to say, "Oh yeah, it's great. Go back and play it. It's really funny. A big, a big sunflower with boobs. It's really, really funny <laughs> because it isn't." <laughs> <laughs> I started playing it when I had a brief foray into the rare replay collection uh, when I borrowed an Xbox One, and uh, it was just yeah, it was just really annoying to play. So I didn't play any more. But I did play the Conquer game on the Game Boy Color, which came out. That was like the first Conquer game where it was just yeah. a really lovely, lovely family-friendly <laughs> adventure. No tiny dicks or massive boobs to be found, just a whole lot of nuts. <laughs> Chris? Obviously, my list has a lot of Mega Drive games on it. And Shinobi 3 mm. is one of the Mega Drive games that just missed the cut. But mainly because I never played it when I was small mm. and, and I never had that sort of nostalgic connection to it. Again, I, th- I think a big part of some of these lower down entries are because maybe I played them quite close to doing the list or something like that where I just hadn't had enough time with them. So when I got my Mega Drive way back when, it came with a six-in-one cartridge and on that cartridge it included The Revenge of Shinobi. But that game was was much slower, it was quite methodical and I just didn't gel with it at all as a kid. Whereas Shinobi 3, to play it now, it's a proper balls-to-the-wall character action bonanza from the opening stage. And it's one that, I experienced first rather than played via its soundtrack release on, on data discs, that vinyl label I've mentioned before, um, because I was in the process of basically just buying anything they released and loved it. It's like a super percussion heavy, like jazz fusion soundtrack coming out of the Mega Drive sound chip. And it's insanely good. And off the back of that, believe it or not, I then worked backwards from soundtrack to game and picked it up on, on the 3DS because it had had a, a 3D release via M2. Oh. And that is a wonderful port. Of, of what I found out was a, a wonderful 16-bit game. I've got no doubt at all, if this was a game I had ground out as a kid in the same way I did Gunstar Heroes, it would be significantly higher on the list. But to drop in and play it as an adult when I had other things on, I had other games on the go, I had other stuff I needed to do just as a grown man, it just it didn't command the same draw. But it is absolutely a 10 out of 10 action game. And and essentially, that sort of title is like the blueprint for things like what Devil May Cry would become mm. in 3D. That sort of, uh, you know, high-paced action game in 2D would just be transposed into, into that sort of character action genre we have now. As I mentioned, it's just not a game that had sat with me long enough to enter the upper tier of titles that I truly love. So Shinobi 3 is absolutely a game that I know is good but just never spent the time with to, to truly fall for, I suppose you could say. <laughs> My second honourable mention is Commandos Behind Enemy Lines, which Ooh. is a PC strategy game where you play as a group of, you guessed it, Commandos. Army soldiers <laughs> in Nazi Germany. You, as, on a side note, do you ever watch The Apprentice? No. So, I mean, we, we occasionally dip into a series and it winds me up 
every single time because the end sting always says, you know, or like the opening, I can't remember what point it comes, it might come in the opening credits or the end or whatever, but it says, and find out who will be Lord Sugar's next business partner. And it's like, they leave a pause. (laughs) Who's going to be Alan Sugar's next business partner? And it winds me up every single time. So uh, often I'll queue up to say something that Sammy knows what the last word is going to be of a sentence and just say (laughs) business partner instead. (laughs) I'll be right back after I've gone to the business partner. So, Commandos is a PC strategy game where you play as a group of, you guessed it, business partners in Nazi Germany. Each of your group uh, have different characteristics and skills, so you need to use all of them together to complete the missions. So you might have, like, uh, the mechanic who could uh, break into enemy vehicles, or the spy who could use, like, a lethal injection to kill soldiers silently and then steal their uniforms. Or you have the Green Beret who was fast and uh, had a knife, so he could just... Get, get stabbing if you if you wanted to. It was it was a it was just really really good. It had a real stealth element to it, which I loved, uh, especially mixed with the real time strategy elements of it. Really, or sort of almost like puzzle solving elements, because I usually find like real time strategy games quite stressful. But the nature of it being stealth orientated meant that you could sort of take your time with it and be more considered with how you operated. And yeah, I really really loved that. It also had really cool music that I liked and uh, very, uh, yeah, very, very cool. It's definitely a better game than some other games that are on my list, but it, it wasn't the game I came back to after I'd had my time with it. And I did try to play, well, there was a standalone expansion called Beyond the Call of Duty, uh, but but just like the first mission of that was so incredibly hard for my small child's mind that I, I didn't really form a connection to the franchise. So yeah, I mean, that's that's ultimately why it, it wasn't on my list. It was it was great, but sort of short-lived in my, in, in my history. But yeah, I'd love to revisit it, to be honest. I know there was a port... Well, recently there was an HD remaster of Commandos 2, which I was really excited about, and then apparently it's absolute bunk. So oh, um, less, less, less excited about that. But... I don't know if you know this, Chris. I was doing some research about this. Yeah. And there's actually a port of it on the Mega Drive. No. Yep. I mean, te- it, I mean, it's technically impressive that they got the game running on it. But, I mean, I was watching a video of it on YouTube. It looks entirely unplayable. It's ridiculous. I mean, they can basically afford, like, one sound effect to, to work for everything. So if somebody screams or shouts or shoots a gun, it'll just go... Eh, 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 eh. <laughs> Like you're playing some sort of Nazi Pac-Man. Look it up. It's 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 fascinating. And if, if you can get that on your emulator station system UFO that you're building, then uh, yeah, maybe give it a go. <laughs> Let me know how it, how that's, it actually That's unbelievable. Yeah, it I've really never is. ever heard of that port. I've, I've had to Google it. Not that I was doubting you. I just wanted to see a photo of mm. it. Yeah. Commanders Behind Enemy Lines released for Microsoft Windows and the Sega Genesis. Yeah. How utterly bizarre that anyone mm. thought that was a good call to make at that stage. <laughs> well, amazing. Minty, your third. Is the World Peace Engine Pokemon Go. Oh, yeah, yes. I, do like, I, I, I love I, it. I do like Pokemon mm. Go a lot. Um, it's not on my list of um, games to prioritize at any given moment, but it, it's always there, isn't it? On on your phone, ready to get booted up. If uh, uh, maybe you're walking down the marina with Mrs. Minty, maybe you're at Big Tesco, or you're out in the woods a couple of days ago searching for uh, firewood after the council have been down chopping trees and 
getting a nice stack of wood chips from my compost. Mm. Anyway, it's, it has gotten away from me a bit in recent years. Um, it's it's now, I think there's there's Team Rocket, there's Raid Battles, which which I, I, I just really, I, I can't get my head around. Um, and apparently some Pokemon are... are uh, evil mm. now i've got i've got an evil pokemon i don't quite know what to do with it but <laughs> i do remember getting it um, when i was on holiday in menorca when it was the day it was released in europe and i spent most of that holiday just tr- trudging around a little town with fuck all mobile signal trying to find where the venusaur was uh, leaving a golbat at the little markets i'm just having an incredible time like, i love walking places anyway the slow pace, the freedom to stop and be impressed by a leaf or chase a frog into a hedge. <laughs> and I think like there so many other people at the time, Pokemon Go really did help a lot with my mental health. I just said goodbye to Mrs. Minty for what I thought would be the, the final time before we started dating. And when she went back to Texas, work was shaky at the best of times. Brexit, my sense of purpose and drive to do anything resembling an edifying task no matter how small was was so low but waking up to nice weather a fully charged battery pack headphones and a text from jonathan saying fancy a walk (laughs) gave me the means to pull myself out of that deep and sad pit get some incredible calves and some cool pokemon along the way i've never had a good enough phone to run it well but i do think it is a fantastic game um implemented well yeah absolutely every time i walk past uh the uh, city hall in cardiff i think of when we went we happened to be going past there playing pokemon go at about half past 11 at night and saw i shit you not over 100 people just gathered around uh the fountain and all the statues and stuff all just um all doing exactly the same thing it was the I think the greatest moment I've witnessed of society. Absolutely. That that period was unreal. Chris. I think it's actually a shame that across our three lists, the only representation of Lego is Lego Harry Potter on your top hundred, Jonathan. Such a good game. Because Lego games are really good and I think they are safe options, but they are remarkably consistent in their quality. And you you could honestly pick any Lego title that's come out since Traveller's Tales took on full-time development back with Lego Star Wars, and you're guaranteed a good time. And if you pick a Lego title based on a franchise that you're particularly fond of and that you love, you'll have an even better time. <laughs> like They're just really good games, and there's always things to unlock, there's always things to collect, there's pastiches, there's references, you've got slapstick reworkings of famous scenes from whatever you know films that they are sort of referencing or, or parodying. And there's just a ton of content each and every time as well that always seems to be produced by people that have a real love for the source material that they're working from. But in spite of all that, Lego City Undercover is my favourite Lego title, which is attached to no licence. And it was originally a Nintendo published but third party developed effort to support the ailing Wii U. And in setup, because it is unshackled from any franchise, it's basically an open world GTA Lite sort of game set in lego city that has stages that draw from a whole range of different films and genre archetypes so not dissimilar to conquer's bad fur day if we're being totally honest there is there's a shawshank redemption chapter there's a matrix chapter there's a loose (laughs) aliens chapter so there are definitely sort of uh, parallels there but no matter what it's aping the writing is really sharp it plays well and it's it's just a very nice way to spend 20 or 30 hours gunning for 100 percent it's super easy to get hold of these days as well, but I'd still recommend either the the Wii U or Switch ports first and foremost because they include a bunch of little Nintendo Easter eggs 
which I feel were a nice way of celebrating that weird connection and genesis to the much maligned console. <laughs> because we all love the Wii U, but no other fucker <laughs> did. So <laughs> this is a little flag for that console, that it's like there were games not developed by Nintendo that were worth playing. <laughs> and I think this is top of that pile. My third honourable mention is it's a really niche little game that I, I think is a game that not many people will have heard of or played, apart from uh, you, Chris, who knows every game. <laughs> it's a game called Virginia. Oh, mm. I think I mentioned before that when I first got my PS4 Pro, my first port of call was to pick up a whole bunch of indie games that I hadn't had the opportunity to play before. These included more active games like Journey, but also included a lot more passive experiences like Gone Home, Dear Esther, Everybody's Gone to the Rapture, Vanishing of Ethan Carter, Firewatch, and Virginia, which is one of these lazily classified walking simulator games. But it is essentially that. You walk through the narrative of the story and it's it's just a really excellent and engaging story full of Twin Peaks-style surreality and weirdness. And the thing that Virginia does really, really well is it has editing programmed into the experience. So you don't walk all the way through the story or across a whole landscape to get to the next story beat. The game will cut to the next scene when you're done with the current scene. And the specific rhythms of the cuts were absolutely brilliant. Like it certainly appealed to the filmmaker in me, especially as I've primarily worked as an editor for the last 15 years. And because I have such a deep understanding of the power of editing, I really enjoyed seeing it used to such a great effect in a medium that I haven't seen use it outside of passive cutscenes. So yeah, it had a real, real effect on me. It's really nice to have an opportunity to talk about the game. And I think... I, I would I would happily play it again. It's been a while since I played it, so I can't really remember the ins and outs and twists of the story. Uh, and certainly since doing this podcast and hearing a lot about some of your games, Chris, like like Firewatch and Proteus and talking with Kezia yeah. Burrows in our Alien special about her involvement in Everybody's Gone to the Rapture. I think I've developed a, a much more profound appreciation for those types of games. Yeah. Because none of those games made it onto my list. And I think maybe subconsciously i i didn't think they perhaps qualified as an equivalent gaming experience as the games that did make it on my list uh just because it was a more passive experience but yeah i think certainly in hindsight that's um uh, that's that's absolutely not the case so yeah a revisit of the game and a reappraisal of my list could see virginia or firewatch or rapture creep into my top 100 but it's uh, yeah, certainly an an excellent, excellent little game to uh, to play, and just a great story to uh, to interact with, Minty. So next up, I've got Sordigo. Ooh, that rings which, a bell. Uh, which was which was no. really cool. Um, just a side-scrolling hack and slash game on iOS that was completely free. Oh yes, I remember. It was yes, sort of meaty, nice and easy to control. In that early sort of tabloid, press the screen here to move that way. Good progression, nice upgrade system, and really solid gameplay. Lovely chunky graphics. Yes, uh, chunky, yeah, chunky graphics. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the things. Whenever I talk about Ocarina of Time to to my mum, she's always like, "Oh yes, yeah." And he he rode the chunky horse. <laughs> so yeah, if you're listening, Debbie, you can pick up Swordigo for free, and you you'll be spoilt for chunky characters. <laughs> Where was I? I couldn't really tell you a thing about the game except that you're a you're a swordsman. You're looking to defeat a great evil, as is the way of these heroes in such games. It's like a it's like a polished 3D free Zelda 2. 
One of the first tablet games I ever played that wasn't just some insert your card to win bullshit like Farmville or uh, Backyard Heroes. This game in particular beats out Zenonia as my favourite tablet game since starting the podcast because it didn't reduce my iPod touch to about three frames per second and <laughs> cause it to melt a hole in my trousers. Yeah, Zenonia was cool, but... Wowie, it, t- it took a lot out of the little, the plucky little hardware. So yeah, sort of go. That's my next one. Chris. My next one, I, I think this is the most mainstream title out of my entire list of, of everything that I've talked about over however many weeks we've been doing this, because it is Call of Duty 2 oh, on the brilliant. Xbox 360. <laughs> and I mean, there, there is nothing else to say about it really other than it's, it's Call of Duty, isn't it? But to clarify, because this is a series that has gone on so long now and is is so like, not watered down because it, it's still very intensely liked by the people that play it. But this is Call of Duty 2 as in the second in the series, the game that launched alongside the 360 and a game in, you know, what is a ubiquitous series that predates all the zombie bits or add-ons or, or modes, whatever they are. It predates all the modern warfare games. It definitely predates the, the Warzone Battle Royale stuff. It predates the franchise being big enough to, to have watered down ports on the Wii and the DS. It predates the series becoming multiplayer focused, really. Like, I think this game had a multiplayer mode, but I never played it. And it's just a straightforward, primarily single player World War II shooter. And I've, I've mentioned before that I was big into achievements during that era of gaming. And I think it may well have been Call of Duty 2 that really kicked that obsession off because the achievement list was tied entirely around beating every stage on the veteran difficulties. That was the, the toughest difficulty. And it was really fucking tough. <laughs> but really, you know, however slowly but surely, I did get through all of it. And and as much as my mostly retired Xbox gamer profile is filled with games that I can't say that I'm that proud of beating, really. You know, I've, I've got things like the tie-in to Nickelodeon's Avatar series had a game uh. and you got the full 1000 gamer score in, in under a minute <laughs> because all the achievements are just tied to keeping up a simple combo of moves. But then you had Call of Duty 2, on the other hand, which was a proper war of attrition to get through (laughs) that felt great to eventually fail. But, you know, like I said, there is nothing else to say, to be honest. It's a war game where you shoot men with guns. And if I'm being really true to myself, it's probably the last vanilla FPS in this style that I enjoyed on any platform for any machine at any time. (laughs) I just, I, I really was just, I've never been that interested in first person shooters. But I think this being tied to kind of very early on in that generation, there wasn't that much to buy and play. And also having this new kind of achievement system as a way of making me get through stuff I might not have otherwise. I suppose it just holds a place because of that, really. But not a place good enough for the top 100. <laughs> well, speaking of World War II console first-person shooter games, my next game is Medal of Honor Frontline for the GameCube. Hey! Or as I like to call it, <laughs> Saving Private Ryan, the game. Yeah. Now... I remember my friend Tim having the game and watching him playing it was just a real joy because it was such a cinematic game that I hadn't really seen before on a console. Like The atmosphere of the game was amazing. Really great real-time storytelling. And I mean, like I said, it does take a lot of beats from Saving Private Ryan, from like the opening sort of D-Day landing the game opens with to quite a lot of other things. But the soundtrack, which is by Michael Giacchino, who's like now a you know big sort of household name of like film film composition the soundtrack in the game is just incredible i remember the guns sounded and felt incredible like really weighty and punchy 
And there were some some brilliant scenarios and set pieces to play through, including a section where you're going over like uh, you're going over a bridge in the fog. That was just oh, it was so just just really really good. And like the the whole game, like so many first person games, is you know especially like uh, where you're playing as somebody in the army, uh, you know really sort of glorify you know the action we know this is it's been a long long-standing criticism of, of those types of games it sort of glamorizes it, it makes it exciting and fun but the overall tone of frontline was just very very mournful and it was yeah it was so it was just really quite poignant compared to all these other games that were focused on speed and violence now the reason it didn't quite make it onto my list is because i i i think i had quite a limited time playing it for myself like I borrowed it from Tim, and uh, later on I, I I bought a copy of it. I think I think when it came, it got traded in when I was working at Game when we were still taking taking in GameCube games, and I was like, well, I'm having that. But I think yeah, I think I enjoyed the game more as a passive player than an active player. And I'm I'm, I'm always annoyed that there was an HD version uh, re released in conjunction with the Medal of Honor reboot that happened. And I don't know why that they they didn't make Frontline HD game like available as a standalone game, like it was it was like a PS3 exclusive apparently, and it never made it onto the PlayStation Store on its own because I I'd buy it now and I play it now and I I want to so I'm annoyed, <laughs> Minty. I started playing Flash games on uh, Neopets back in the day, and none of them were that good, but they did plant the notion that free internet games did exist. I was not nearly cool enough to play games on miniclip um, in high school with, with with all the fellas in the library. But when I started uh, doing box office shifts down at the local theatre, I suddenly found myself with an hour or two here and there of nothing to do except to stop people either going into the auditorium or telling them how to, how to get to the shitter. <laughs> and during those periods of time, of course, I was do a big old Google search once I'd closed down the box office system and do a quick Google search for free games online. And one of the ones uh, at the time was Ninja Kiwi's Bloons, which oh. was a really lovely puzzly type game where you, you were a monkey and you held you held many darts in your, uh, I guess, quiver, bag, some sort of container. But you'd throw darts in an arc and you'd try and hit as many balloons as you could and you had to get a certain percentage to get to the next level. It was it was quite a well established series, and I think they do tower defense games now on the available on uh, on tablet, which they're fun, but they're not they're not what I'm focusing on today. Um, I loved the just the original dart popping games and seeing the progression of the series. You started off with um, just your basic uh, balloon popping game where you had to get as many as you could. You get some power-ups, like one might turn your dart into three and give you a little bit of a spread. One might turn a balloon into ice so you could bounce off of it. While the uh, while the developers were bringing out uh, games and sequels in that spirit of popping as many, you also had the user packs, which took the puzzle-solving element of it to the max. So you'd end up with levels where you had to bounce off maybe three or four different balls just to pop one single balloon, and it was... It had to be so precise, and whereas the original Balloons games had the satisfying just being able to get that one balloon after 50 tries on this one level that, I don't know, Slayer 98XX has built was just another kind of satisfying. It's a great series, and I'm glad for people like uh, 
uh, the folks making Flashpoint to archive all these games, mm. which would be lost to the ravages of time. A little tidbit, Ninja Kiwi, obviously because of the death of Flash online, went out of their way to collect together almost all of their kind of early work into one thing you could download on Steam for free. Mm. And and I installed that at some point. And I was, oh, that'd be nice, you know, as a way of being able to play these after after Adobe pulls Flash completely. The executable needs Flash installed to run. <laughs> so it's it's useless. It's completely useless. Brilliant. So the, in in their efforts to preserve their their legacy, they did they did nothing, <laughs> which is which is a real shame. But I'm sure there's places, you know, online or Flashpoint where someone is backing up like offline versions of, of every Flash game ever, essentially. So it will live on. But it's always a shame when those kind of efforts don't quite work out because there's there's great intention behind it. And and it's just a shame that it's now not as easy to, to access some of this stuff that up until that point was just freely available. Anyway, my, my next one, my next honourable mention is uh, the first of two curveballs on my list, I think. Ooh. Because... Well, as much as some of the kids at school make me feel like I am 10,000 years old when they are talking incessantly about some YouTuber that I have literally never heard of, I'm not actually old enough to have owned an Atari 2600. But what I did own is a Game Boy Advance compilation called Activision Anthology, and it's a collection of Atari 2600 games published by Activision. (laughs) And on that cartridge there, there's a lot of stinkers. Because for every game like Pitfall or, or Hero, which are both games that are genuinely enjoyable and still hold up really well, there's five or six just outright turds, <laughs> like just really simple score chasers that feel barely more advanced than like the LCD games I used to buy from Woolworths with my pocket money. Yeah. <laughs> like they, they do nothing. So, you know, it's the, the blow is softened by the fact there's 60 or so games on this cartridge, but a lot of it is rubbish. But one game, Barnstorming, Oh, it's a good one. Like it's it's really simple. It's really addictive. You control a little biplane. You've got one button to accelerate, and then you just press up and down on the D pad to maneuver, and that's it. And you're either flying over obstacles uh, or inside and through barns. If you miss a barn, you lose. If you hit an obstacle, you lose. That it's that straightforward. And yet, I played it for hours on this cartridge. And, and I'd finish a 30-second run and then immediately think, I could do that faster. I'd, I'd just fly closer to that last telegraph pole and I'd waste another 45 minutes getting it right. Or I'd look at it and go, I think I could beat that time if I, if I flew through the middle of the flock of birds rather than just over the top of them. And it's it's got that very kind of Sega Rally thing all over again, that there's very, very little content, mm. like way less than Sega Rally because it's a game from the early 80s. But the the controls and the central mechanic is is so tight and enjoyable that it was really easy to lose time to. So I, I wouldn't include that cartridge collection on the list or on, in my honourable mentions, but barnstorming on its own, I'd love to have a copy of that. Just the 2600 set up in the corner, going through the coaxial aerial in the back of the TV and in just horrendously warped a vision now on, on my 4K screen. But yeah, I love it. It's a great game. So from your curveball to a curved ball. Oh. And we're on to the Saturn with oh. this game. And it's one of very, very few sports games that have had a real impact on me and it's Jonah Lomu's rugby. Uh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's a great reaction. Now, 
I've, I've never massively been into rugby as a sport. I enjoyed playing it in school because even though I was pretty small, I was very fast, which meant I was quite good as a winger unless I got tackled and then I would crumple like a piece of dry paper. <laughs> and, I, and I've never really watched much rugby apart from obviously the 2003 World Cup where I got so involved that I burst into tears as Johnny Wilkinson's penalty kick won the competition for England. <laughs> but Jonah Lomu's rugby was a really fun little sports game. Now, because of the more strategic setup of rugby compared to the more, I guess I guess you'd call it free-form play of FIFA 96 on the Saturn, <laughs> it exercised a very different part of your brain playing it, like managing your scrums and the lineouts, and just having a good line of players to pass across the field to was really satisfying because you used the, the shoulder buttons on the Saturn pad to do your passing, to either pass left or right. But the thing that I really loved in the game were the secret teams that you could unlock. Now... Jonah Lomu, being the cover boy for the game, was already absurdly overpowered in the game. He was almost twice as big as the other players, <laughs> twice as strong, twice as fast. So when you unlock Team Lomu with a full team of the guy, <laughs> that was great. Uh, especially as, I mean, the commentator already had a few more variations of saying Lomu's name than any other player. And, and now those games would just be Lomu, 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 Lomu. Lomu, <laughs> interspersed with the now questionable commentary, digging like a demented mole there. <laughs> there was another special team that I really loved that uh, was, it was a fairly sort of like normal-ish team, apart from three players. There was this one guy who was a, just this enormous tank of a player. He, I mean, literally, literally 10 times the size of everyone else. And you could have a whole team trying to tackle him and he would just be just palming them off like all the way to the try line. And then there was this like minuscule chap who was like a few pixels tall, but like a hundred times faster than anyone else. And then you had this super powered kicker who could kick a successful conversion uh, from like the other end of the pitch. No problem. I, I don't know whether or not we unlock the teams legitimately or if we found cheats to unlock them uh, or whatever. I don't know. But me and Alex, my brother, we just, yeah, we had a, a great amount of fun playing with those, those silly teams. And um, yeah, it holds a special place in my heart for that. It's, um, it's the only rugby game I've, I've ever played. And I remember it being, I remember it, you know, it working well. And it's just a shame that like, I mean, they're just not rugby games aren't made, you know, it hasn't, hasn't been picked up in, in the same way that FIFA has, but um, I think the, the potential's there for a really, really good rugby game. So there we go. Those are the first 15 honourable mentions, a great smattering of excellent games that it's been great to shine a small shred of light onto. Next week, we'll be discussing the remaining 15 honourable mentions and you've got a real treat in store as we catalogue an extraordinary selection of games, the likes of which you've never heard or possibly just never heard of, uh, as is well, in the case of me, to be honest, I don't know half of the stuff they've played. In the meantime, please do reach out to us on our social media channels. You can find links to our Facebook, Instagram, Twitch and YouTube channels on our Linktree page. That's linktr.ee slash O3C podcast. Or you can reach out to us individually on Twitter. I am at Jonathan Dunn. I am forever and always at Chaz underscore Hodges. And I'm Clement underscore Boo. And if you really love what we're doing and want to be involved with the podcast on a deeper level, then head over to patreon.com slash our three cents and check out the amazing perks on offer in exchange for some pennies and cents of your support. And we will see you next week for the back nine. Uh, that's a golf term. It's, it's actually the back 15. <laughs> as we round off our honourable mentions. See you then.
Hi, I'm Ray, and this is my friend Alex. Hi. And we do a show called No More Whoppers. Do you want pins and stickers? Because we don't have them. Like a broken keyboard, we're out of control. Check it out. You got Wah Wah Wah, Poet Hojo. How about a No More Whoa? Join us every month or so on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Fans of video games, history, or video game history will definitely want to listen to Retronauts. Each week, Bob Mackie and myself, that's Jeremy Parrish, dive into the stories behind the greatest games of the past and the history behind the hits of today. Check us out every Monday on the Greenlit Podcast Network.